Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for February 12th, 2023. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, and just a little housekeeping. We are coming on early. We've done this for many years on Super Bowl Sunday. We go ahead and give everybody a show. We'll go a little early since we know a lot of folks will be listening live anyway, and then um, both us and probably this week our guest, uh, Tim, myself, our guest, I want to watch it. So, you know, if we talk about the Super Bowl, we don't know who wins it. So if you listen to it later, we'll make a prediction. We could be right. We could be wrong. We're mainly going to talk politics um, around things. And so starting off, um, the Super Bowl of um, yearly presidential addresses happened on Tuesday night, the State of the Union. And um, I don't know what the expectations were going into the State of the Union, um, but the, the guy from Delaware, the Philadelphia area, definitely exceeded them uh, this time due to all accounts. Uh, Catherine, what were your takeaways from this year's State of the Union? Well, I didn't watch it live. Um, I just could not stand to look at Kevin McCarthy's face for all that time, so I didn't watch it. But I read about it, and I, you know, caught up with it um, after the fact. I'm glad that um, our president was a little feisty. I think that's good to see, and... um, that he responded to some of the, you know, hecklers. And, uh, I mean, I don't usually think he should respond to that, but I think he did a good job of, you know, slamming them down a little bit. I'm, you know, I continue to be shocked by the behavior of some of our Republican elected officials, um, you know, heckling and booing. And uh, it just seems so uh, disrespectful to the office, to the body of the of of Congress, and then to the uh, to the citizens of the country, to interrupt the president while he's addressing us, and it, it just it 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 bothers me, and um, it's sort of heartbreaking to me. Um, so, but but I think it sounds like uh, it went over well. I think the body of the you know message was good so uh, good for joe yeah i guess we think back about almost a decade now uh joe wilson yelling out uh when barack obama was uh, addressing congress with you lie it seems like that was um you know many many years ago we've just completely jumped the shark from that um tim it kind of reminded me of Prime Minister's Question Times, which this is, you know, we don't have the format for that during the State of the Union. That's not our format. 
Well, the first few minutes I thought were kind of slow. The president was not really connecting much, and I thought, man, this is going to be a fair, fairly boring affair. Uh, not not exactly. It, it was when the Republican members began hollering at him, I think, that he hit his stride. Um, and And he just started having direct exchanges with them, and he set them up for that uh, Social Security and Medicare thing, and they played right into it, and he won that exchange handily. And when it was over, I'll be honest, uh, guys, I decided that it was his best speech so far as president. That's what a lot of people are saying. Yeah, um yeah, I guess the, the narrative of it is people have such low expectations for President Biden. And so, and, and, you know, of course, the Republicans, they like to talk about all these, you know, wild, crazy theories they have about his um, abilities. And then they set him up to look so good when they do that, don't you think, Catherine? Yeah. I agree. Yeah. So um, well, yeah. let's talk about this. The polling off of this um, – now, the polling on these things is, is kind of tricky in that more people of the president's party will watch the State of the Union. Therefore, the approval of it gets inflated to a point. But I want to say everything I saw, like more than 70 percent of the people approved of it, but the audience – and I sent you all this – one, the number one um, source for people viewing the State of the Union was Fox News, not a Joe Biden-friendly audience. And second, most of the audience was older than 55. And we think, okay, that's one of his worst demographic is you know, older Generation X voters and then uh, boomers. But yeah, that's who watched it, and that's who was approving of it. Uh, Tim – What's your thoughts on how how and why the um, reaction was so positive? Well, uh, you you did mention one thing, and that was uh, who who was watching. the The audience was eight uh, percent more democratic than the electorate is right now. So so there's that. Um, I'm not surprised an older crowd was watching it. Normally, an older crowd watches the State of the Union. The, the young folks generally don't, don't tune in, to be honest with you. I would say if the polling reflected the electorate at large, I still think probably about 60% uh, of those watching had to approve of it because the man just made a really good speech. He handled hecklers well. The hecklers made themselves look bad. They made their party look bad, and our congresswoman was leading the charge, and boy, have they been giving it to her on social media. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I'm not even going to say what they've been comparing her to in the animal kingdom, but it, uh, it, it, it it's not pleasant for her if she happens to be seeing some of that stuff. But uh, 
but uh, the uh, you know the, there's no doubt that a, that a large majority of those watching uh, this speech proved. Yeah, um, I do think that, like you said, it was 8% more Democratic. Well, you think of the math on that, you go, okay, well, that would be like 50% of the country, maybe Democratic. I know there's some, some independents, but with leaners, you know, that still gets you to like 58% approval without any Republicans because mm-hmm. I'm pushing all the independents. That means basically, mathematically, all Democrats had to approve the speech, most every independent, and then a share – of Republicans, which in this highly po- polarized environment, to get any you know significant portion of the other party to say, "Hey, that was pretty good," is an accomplishment. It speaks to how well it is. Yeah, Catherine. Well, um, now let's talk about the other side. I'll oh, go ahead, Tim. No, yeah, you go ahead. I, I've got a point to make in a minute. Okay. Well, I, I don't want to get past it, but uh, Catherine. Um, so. Uh, the hecklers, and you mentioned Kevin McCarthy, and he did make some faces early on. But later on, he had to be like the the, the school teacher without a control class and try to control them because I guess he was aware of how bad the optics were. Um, what is your take on how this will impact the Republicans um, in some places? Their um, you know very immature reaction. Well, some some people. Um, you know, the, maybe the base and, you know, some of the more uh, strident Republicans probably liked it. You know, they they seem to like, you know, sticking it to the libs, as they say. But um, I think that, you know, people who uh, have respect for the office and respect for the for both both um, houses of Congress. Are are um, are kind of uh, maybe they're not outraged, but they're annoyed by it. It's um, like I said earlier, it's disrespectful, and it shows that he does not have control, and uh, reflects badly on on him and his leadership, in my opinion. And I think that's in general what people think. I mean, that's what a leader is supposed to do: is keep everybody in check. Uh, on important for important moments, so I don't think it helped him. Yeah, it just it shows he has the, like no control there. Um, Tim, uh, you were about to make a point. I hope we hadn't moved too far past it. No, you know what I wanted to mention uh, was I think this speech had four winners and four losers. If you're dividing the speech up, I think President Biden obviously was a winner. I think Mitch McConnell was a winner. And the reason I think that is that somebody that Mitch McConnell really does not like is Rick Scott. Uh, more on that in a moment. Mitt Romney, I think, was a winner just because of what he did to Santos. And obviously, seniors were winners. I mean, what are we talking about here? Medicare and Social Security, uh, coupled with the fact that seniors were tuning in and watching carefully. The losers in this, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Rick Rick Scott's a loser. His plan 
we were talking about, and nothing tickled Mitch McConnell more than to come walking right out to the microphone and say, no, we're not going to do this plan. It's, uh, you know, basically agree with Biden. I think George Santos was a loser. Uh, I know he's a loser. And, 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 And finally, don't you guys think Kevin McCarthy was a loser because he can't control his own people? Yes. Yeah, I, I think Kevin McCarthy was a loser because he was a winner on that 15th ballot. I think the, the, the winning prize was like winning the prize at a, a timeshare convention where you get some kind of horrible debt that will never leave. Well, um, you, know, you, know, it, you, you, know, you know, David, my point is, though, he had already read all of them the Riot Act. The caucus had met, and he had told them to tone it down, and it was like it was falling on deaf ears, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. It's, it's because he he actually is a more astute, smarter politician than gets it than Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and others. And he tells them, this won't play well, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da, all these swing places, the reason they lose some of these Senate seats they thought they were going to win, and, and some of the House seats. Um, he knows this, and he tells them, but they know when they go to Shooter's Grill, what everybody thinks, or they go up to Crazy Acres and what everybody thinks, <laughs> and these are real places that are into those two ladies' districts. They go, well, the crowd at Crazy Acres will just love it when I do this to old Joe. And they don't get it that not everybody is their base. And so they play to their base 24-7. So, uh, and I don't know how he begins to teach them and control them. Because, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, there's all this narrative about how she's going to be a different, more professional Marjorie Taylor Greene. And, and we know better. She went just this weekend to Idaho, and she talked about how um, we all know Mitch McConnell is a Democrat, well, as a Democrat for over 30 years, I'll go ahead and tell you, he's not. He's one of the most effective Republican politicians in the past 50 years, maybe the past 100 years. He's really gotten a lot done for their side, but she doesn't appreciate it. She doesn't know it because she doesn't know anything about you know, political history or anything else. Um, it's something you do think, well, what's, what is ever going to teach the people in these districts about these folks? Marjorie Taylor Greene. At the start of the year, let her congressional office that does congressional work for her workers just close up in Rome this past week. The largest single city that's not like a suburb or what have you, the largest city in her district, she just let the congressional office close up. How are you going to get constituent services on a face-to-face basis inside of the district? Not driving or flying it to Washington D.C. You, know, you know, but are I, people going to learn and do anything about that? Who knows? You know, you know, David. I grew up in Rome, born and raised there, and in my total memory, there has always been a congressional office there in Rome, always. And the very fact that she would let an office like that close in the very city she lives in, I might add. I don't even see the logic in it. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, (laughs) on paper paper she lives there, okay, guys? 
Uh, and she's occasionally seen jogging there, so there's that. But uh, you, you know what? She wants to be a national figure, but she doesn't really know anything about national politics. No, not at all. Well, speaking of people that know something about national politics, we're going to bring in our guest for at least a third time, um, the uh, leader of Race to the WH, Mr. Logan Phillips. Welcome, Logan. Hey, how are you guys doing? Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, yeah, great to have you back. Well, um, Logan, uh, I wanted to have you back for two reasons. One, the last time we had you on was the Sunday before the NFL kickoff of the season, now it's Super Bowl Sunday. We're going to talk a little football in a minute. But at the same time, we talked extensively about your model, and you were kind of in the point where I guess this was the first time that the model had been really used on elections or would be used on the 2022 elections. So let's start there. How did it perform? And uh, tell us why it performed like it did. Yeah. Um, well, I, I did have it going in 2020, which just back then, you know, it was kind of like in a vacuum because maybe had a few thousand followers instead of what I have now. Um, so this was the time where it was on a more professional level, both in how I designed the forecast and in how I uh, tried to present it publicly. But I think it went really well. We ended up being the most accurate in the country. Um, we had, you know, I think, I think the general take was by most pundits going in, uh, at least who were data-driven, that the GOP was on track to underperform but still do decently well for the midterms. Um, but they missed the mark in the Senate race. And to be fair to them, there were a lot of these unbelievably close races, right, at least going in, a Pennsylvania one ended up being a clean win for Fetterman. Um, but mine was off by just one in the Senate. We had Democrats taking it. We had the GOP taking um, 223 seats. They won 222. Mm. Yes. Well, without, without getting into the, the secret sauce and the formula, we know going into the election, we heard a lot of the more traditional pundits that were very um, negative on the Democratic chances, then in turn kind of bullish on Republican chances, although it wasn't like they were like, oh, the Republicans are doing this bang-up job to take all these majorities. But then we had some folks looking at the early vote, particular Tom Bonier and Simon Rosenberg. And, and um, they you know, were both you know, online talking about, hey, if you look at particularly these early vote numbers, if you look at giving um, and things like that, and th- they kind of went through that. It looks like your model – was able to break through too. Do you have any mechanisms or, or in general, I mean, like how do you look at the early vote and um, fundraising and those other metrics besides poll numbers? So we use all sorts of metrics outside of um, polling. Unfortunately, I don't yet have the capacity to do early vote. I, it was kind of torturous watching these numbers coming out, especially from John Rawson in Nevada, which is that's the one Senate race I got wrong. Uh, because, you know, this guy is such a pro in Nevada politics, and Nevada votes much higher percentage early than most, that when he said, okay, feeling, you know, I think Captain Cortez has this, even though it's going to be close, I was like, okay, well, I'm pretty confident my model's wrong. But, you know, I trust Ralston over myself, and he was right. Um, the problem is you have to really understand on a precinct, precinct, by precinct level um, what we should expect versus what the early vote is. Now, I could probably build a mechanism to do that. It would take a few months, but I could do it. Um, the challenge and why I didn't do it this cycle was the percentage of the electorate that is voting early is shifting wildly from year to year. So one, we had, you know, it went up in 2018 anyway. In 2020, it was way higher than it probably ever will be again. 
barring some real changes thanks to COVID. And so you just didn't really know what to use for 2022. So I couldn't really say. I could say, oh, this is probably good news for Democrats like in Georgia, probably bad news in places like Florida, but I didn't have any way near to get the precision because you have to have a comparison point. And there just was literally none in American history to use for most of these places that would be relevant. Um, That being said, oh, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, well, you mentioned Nevada. Um, and Democrats won there in the Senate race, very close. They lost in the governor's race, not quite as close. Um, I mean, your model may not show it, but you're obviously a political observer. What made the difference in Nevada in the two races? Uh, I think that Republicans had recruited an absolute star candidate in Lombardo, Um their real weakness this cycle is that they struggled to get those top-tier candidates, right? Um, but Lombardo was one of the best across the board because, you know, he was a sheriff that had won 80% of the vote representing Clark County, which is where um, two-thirds of Nevadans lived. And he, he got a national profile um, after his response to the mass shooting, including, very unfortunate for uh, Governor Sisolak, he said that, you know, we're lucky to have this guy who's the best sheriff in the country. <laughs> Those are the ads he was running against Lombardo, who never expected to run against him at the time. Yes. Well, um, I know that um, Tim has more political questions. Catherine may as well, but I would be remiss since we did have you come on to talk about that NFL model that you were just launching um, before the season. Tell us um, how well did it work out and just kind of talk to us about, you know, what teams maybe performed right on target, which ones exceeded, uh, went down. And we're talking, I guess, a little more math than football. But, of course, if you sneak into some hardcore football, it's okay. Yeah, of course. Um, Yeah, well, as a Giants fan, I am very happy to say that I wildly underestimated them. Uh, And, uh, you know, I was rooting for you with the Falcons after a conversation. I've been watching them a little closer, and for a while they were doing a little better than my projections, too. Um, I I did underrate them as well. But as a whole, I think we were really accurate, especially in the playoffs. We were better than uh, the Vegas odds makers um, in terms of predicting what the uh, outcome of games would be in the point differential 67% of the time. Got a little more accurate in figuring out the favorite teams. Um, I don't have those numbers per se, game by game. Um, overall this season, but, you know, I think we did a good job of identifying the Eagles as a major threat, although, you know, they did better than I think you could have predicted at the beginning, though this was certainly a feasible type of outcome because they've had an amazing season. Now, the place where I'm differing from everyone else right now by the slightest of margins is I do have the Eagles as modest favorites, like 51% chance today, um, where I know most of Vegas thinks that the uh, Chiefs are favored. Yes, so you went and gave us a Super Bowl prediction as well. Well, that's great. I'm going to pass it over to Tim for some more questions. I think he's got a lot of politics. He may have a football question or two, and then Catherine went up. She may come up with some other things as well. Tim? Oh, good evening, Logan. Thank you for being with us today. Um, the first place I'd like to go with you is Arizona. Your model shows Ruben Gallego holding like a – 72-28 chance of winning advantage over a generic Republican. My question, though, is about uh, Kirsten Cinema. If she runs as an indie, would that not totally change the 
dynamic, or as Ruben Gallego still, that big a favorite, even in a three-person race? Yeah, well, that is a fantastic question. Um, that's the defining question, if not for just Arizona, if not the Senate uh, races in general, because Democrats already have a challenge when they have to win, you know, two to three between Ohio, Montana, and uh, West Virginia to keep the Senate. So if Arizona gets thrown in the mix with cinema runs in three parties, it's going to be a challenge. I start with the model today having her not run, and the reason is, is that I usually politicians do it in their interest and cinema just has a very long path. She does tend to go to break convention a bit. So it's certainly possible. Um, if it is a three way, I only, I need more information to be able to do this well for anyone, but one matchup, which is Carrie Lake, because there's been a lot of three way polling. Cause I have to know uh-huh. how much they're fundraising and all sorts of other information that I just can't get this early. Um, but if it is Carrie Lake, my, my first draft forecast shows Ruben Gallego winning 35 0.4%, Carrie Lake winning 34%, Cinema winning 29.6%, um, with, you know, Gallego and Lake both having a real pathway uh, to victory. Oh. Okay. Well, let me jump across the country now. I want to go to Kentucky. Um, um, one, one of the most interesting politicians, I think, in the country is, is Governor Bashir. You know, Donald Trump won that state by, like, 25 points, as I recall, and at the same time, Governor Bashir has a 61% approval rating and an almost 10-point lead in your model uh, against Daniel Cameron, who would be like a strong top-tier opponent. Uh, how is it that Governor Bashir is defying the odds and doing so well in your model, do you think? Yeah, well... Um... I, I think if I have it against Bashir, I have him up by 6% and then about 8% against the field because if it's anyone else, it's a weaker – you know, the other ones would be weaker candidates if he fails to win the nomination. But you're right. The poll mm-hmm. shows him up by over 10, which is incredible, right? Um, that mm-hmm. means you're probably going to be dealing with like a 35% split or so between uh, last election and this one. But, you know, Kentucky, despite the way it's often framed, I think sometimes unfairly in the national media – this is a state that's a lot like Massachusetts, but you just have to flip the script, right? Massachusetts loves its good governance Republicans that will check the state legislator that are bipartisan and are usually like it's a higher level. It's almost like a higher uh, floor that the Republican has to have in leadership skills. If they don't seem to have it, they're going to get destroyed. It's the same with Dems in Kentucky. They voted more for Democratic governors at the same time as presidents have been winning landslide after landslide. Um, and, you know, Bashir beat a sitting incumbent, and, uh, you know, it was unclear. It's still unclear if he'll be able to do it with a Democrat as president. You know, the country's getting more partisan. There's less states doing that type of split ticket voting. But, you know, so far the polling strongly suggests he's in favor to do it. Now, part of that's because majority of Republicans – or 40 percent, sorry, of Republicans or so approve of him, which is just incredible. You don't see any numbers like that these days. Mm-hmm. I'm not um, certain – if that holds once he's under attack. And that's the question of, will this election get more partisan? And if it does, that's how he could lose. Okay. Uh, do you think the, um, the fact that there's a press, well, no, actually, hit that election is this year, isn't it? Do you think the fact that that election is pretty much a standalone election without national implications, say, of a presidential race or 
you know, Senate and governor's races in 20 other states, do you think the fact that it's the standalone race has an effect? You know, Kentucky, again, operates a little differently than the other states that are on the weird years. So uh-huh. I, think it, I think it does help him, actually. But if you're in New Jersey or Virginia, there's a pattern, and it seems to be persisting no matter how blue Virginia is or how red it was, if we go back many decades, um, when it was one of the redder states out there. They just love to go against the president's party. They, it's like a 20-point swing almost some years um, for, mm-hmm. compared to what it would be otherwise. Um, Same with New Jersey, even though it's blue enough that Dems can still win it now um, in those situations. But Kentucky, yeah, they they seem to do their own thing. Um, And, you know, he I think it's still a state that in some ways likes some bluer economic policies, um, even if culturally it's very red. And Bashir's been protecting health care and expanding it, doing some good work with on infrastructure, as you know, we saw him and Mitch McConnell. Um, and Biden at the, you know, supporting one of the most important bridges in the country. I'm, I think it's Brent something, I forget the name, that has like about 4% or something of our GDP going through it every day. Um, it's now going to be re- resurfaced, and that's popular. So, um, you know, he has the bipartisan rep, and he, people feel like he's getting stuff done, and he's going to be popular as a result. Mm. Okay, now I want to turn to the U.S. House for a minute, and uh... – Kind of put you on the spot a little bit. I don't know if you can uh, exactly answer this question, but I'm going to give it a try anyway. You know, historically, when 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 pundits are, are trying to call races, uh, historically, competitive house races are, are, are tough to call. I, I guess a lot of it has to do with, with with the fact that a lot of the polling in these races is kind of sporadic at best. So... What you did in 2022 was otherworldly. How in the world were you so accurate with your call in the U.S. House nationally? Um, I don't know. I feel really good about my model, but I also have to be honest. I don't think I can. I don't think I'm going to average one off on. So if I have two off next, you don't get too upset with me. <laughs> so, okay. so that being said, you know, uh-huh. my, my, my strategy was, you know, this was a harder cycle to begin with because we have entirely new maps. And normally you have a decade worth of data you can use to see how people have been voting. Or maybe not a decade, but at least a few elections, right? A decade mm-hmm. towards the end. So we had, to, you know, you had to figure out where everyone was had voted in precincts on the past few elections um, based off the new district. So that takes some work to figure out. And mm-hmm. then, you know, we adjusted it based off of how they performed in the last election in their old district and how much they over and underperformed expectations, and then shift that to the new one. And uh, you know, and also like if you're Fundraising has become a little less predictive in the Senate because Democratic donors just love to give a small dollar donor machine. It's, you know, it's powering them and they're getting a big edge from that. Um, but in the House, you know, they're paying less attention to it, honestly. And so the fundraising is a bit more predictive and that was really useful as well. Um, but I would say, you know, the biggest thing is the assumptions that underlie these models, no matter how much we try to have stuff data driven, it's going to influence you what's happened lately. Um, mm-hmm. And I think history is, while very strongly predictive, sometimes you have to look up from the spreadsheets and see what's going on. Um, those special elections we saw were like blue wave 2018 style. Now, I, I didn't expect that 
happening on election day. And the environment did mm-hmm. seem to cut against Dems from the summer, but it was too much of a hint to say, we can't just go into this thinking it's going to be an R plus three or better cycle. Um, so, you know, the polling is a big part of what I thought the national environment, I had to make some underlying assumptions and some guess, some combination of data driven and guesswork. Um, I ended up using a combination of what had happened in recent elections um, and what was happening in the special elections to get a number in between the two that I think was a little stronger for them. So I had them probably doing about a half point better nationally than most people um, and losing by like, you know, I think I had them losing by about 2.1 in the popular vote and they lost it by like 1.5, 1.6. Once we take a consideration for the districts that there's no a candidate running unopposed because there's a lot of Republicans running unopposed. Um, mm-hmm. And that got a lot closer. So, so my individual house races were good, but I think the national part made the difference. Um, without that, you know, I would have missed by six or seven instead. Okay. I got one more question I got for you, and then I'm going to pass it over to Catherine. She might want to talk to you about the presidential race or something. But I want to ask you about Joe Manchin. Now, your model is showing he's going to lose to whoever the GOP nominee is in West Virginia. Does that opponent have to be Governor Justice, or do you firmly believe that Joe Manchin is going to lose regardless of who the Republican nominee is? So I have a lot more uncertainty about this race than I do others. Mm-hmm. Um Unfortunately, we only have one pollster. It's Trident. They're not – I don't want to be mean because I appreciate as many polls released as possible, but they have a record that's spotty, and they do have a Republican bias, and they did seem to have an agenda because they showed a poll that showed them doing so well I couldn't believe it. And then right after the, infrastructure, the bill on um, the Inflation Reduction Act, it, you know, his numbers plummeted. Now – I've seen another approval rating poll from Morning Consult that does seem to confirm that really changed voters' view because I think he was becoming popular as someone that was standing up to Biden specifically on the Build Back Better stuff um, as being seen as a conservative check. And once that went away, you know, it really hurt him. But I'm not – I definitely think he's a clear underdog, but I wouldn't rule out Manchin like Susan Collins finding a path to rebuild his support. He's one of the most effective politicians. He's been picking his fights with Biden lately. Yeah, it's possible it's silly to come back. He's against justice. That's going to be very tough because he's popular and also a bit of a former Dem himself, even though he's a Republican for strategic reasons, in my view, because um, he switched parties for his reelect last time. But, uh, yeah, sorry, go ahead. What are you going to say? All right. Well, with that, I am going to send it over to Catherine. Catherine? Hey, thanks for being on the show tonight. We really appreciate it. As, or, uh, hey, good to be on here. Thank I you. Say, I don't really have any questions. I'm fascinated by all this, but it's a little bit beyond the, all the um, polling and all that stuff. It's sort of beyond my uh, comprehension. So I'm going to pass it back to David, but if I come up with another question, I may jump back in. Yes, yeah, sounds good. I'm happy to talk about non-polling, too. Yeah, well, well, let's talk about the presidential race. Um, We know you've got a model with it, too, but then you've probably got a gut instinct um, as well. Um, So the field on the Republican side is by no means set, but we know Donald Trump's in. I guess Nikki Haley is in. 
Um, and then everybody's assuming that Ron DeSantis is running a shadow campaign. There may be others. What's your model and just your personal take on the um, GOP 2024 primary? Well, I don't have a model for this one yet. I'm starting to build the foundation. But, you know, I'm tracking the polling, and uh, I would say that, you know, Trump is – there's some real red signs for him. Um, you know, the polling's close, but, you know, I think what's scary if you're – well, I don't think that's you guys, but if, if one is a Trump fan, uh, is that, like, he is losing by, like, 2 or 3% when it's head-to-head. But not every Republican even knows who Ron DeSantis is. Like 15% have, don't know enough to even have an opinion on him. So it probably means he's down by more based off of history that, you know, get, people tend to get stronger as they know as their name rate goes up over time. Uh, you know, my, my math says it'd be closer to 7, 8 to 10% lead once you correct for that. So um, obviously things can change. We don't know how DeSantis is going to do once he hits the road. I also think that everyone's making a mistake by assuming that those are the only two outcomes that can come out of the GOP. Uh, we've seen time and time again, right? It, it, it usually doesn't happen, but it's, it's a little stronger than it meant to. But we've seen it happen like four or five times where a candidate near the bottom got up to the top. Bill Clinton started at 1.5%. Um, Donald Trump started at 0%. Jimmy Carter started at 1%. So I wouldn't say it's 100% DeSantis or Trump if, Trump ends up having health issues or legal issues or, you know, just looks too old on the stage and the electability attacks work. Or if DeSantis is a paper tiger and can't campaign nearly as well as people had hopes once he's on the trail and debating every day, we could see an, a, a lane opening for someone like Nikki Haley or uh, Tim Scott. Hmm. I'm actually going to interrupt well, now and, I'm on and ask a question. Go ahead. Go ahead, Catherine. This, this week, Brian Kemp, uh, Georgia's governor um, expanded his PAC to a federal PAC uh, mm. looking the presumption was that he's looking for some national attention some people think he might be re- planning to run for Senate against uh, John Ossoff but others are wondering if he might want run for president What have you heard anything about that and what's your thought about that so that's very interesting. Um, my take on Kemp up until about 10 seconds ago <laughs> was that he would, <laughs> because I didn't know that. that, that that's a big deal. Um, you know, he hadn't been doing anything to suggest he was going to run. You know, he hasn't been speaking at the key events. I thought he didn't have a pack that was federal. Um, you know, he hasn't written a book recently. There's all these signs, like, he hasn't visited any of the four states in the last year or so, at least since, like, June. So, you know, I'm, try, I'm starting to pay attention to that to see who's going to run. And I'm like, okay, this guy could be a contender, but I haven't seen anything. You know, I, I see Kemp as a guy who, if he gets to the final point, could be a real contender. You know, we've seen a lot of guys like Steve Bullock that have excellent election records fall flat on their face because you really need to have some creativity and create a message that stands out if you're not coming in with a lot of support. And right now the GOP pundits love him. The elites might love him. But the regular voters, he's like pulling at less than 1% or maybe 1% when they ask about him. So, you know, if he gets to the final three, I certainly wouldn't count him out. I think he has a lot of strength in fundraising and political skills. But I think that um, he, he would probably notice going in that he'd come in with 
you know, the most likely outcome being that he doesn't end up getting above three or 4%. But still maybe a, you know, one in 20 shot of winning the whole thing. Um, And he needs to decide if he wants to do that. Um, That could probably, you know, that has a tendency to wreck your other future plans if you run and run for Senate, if that's his goal. Um, But if not, you know, everyone likes the idea about being president. We see a lot of people, um, you know, who have a small shot taking the chance um, at being the most powerful person in the world. (laughs) Thank you. Well, I'll, I'll it'll go ahead once the Republican electorate um, heard about him visiting Davos and promoting multiple electric car manufacturing plants, expanding um, the Hope Scholarship to give more people free college, increasing government workers' salaries, who all those good Republicans know are just people living on the dole. He'll be dead in the water in the Republican primary, so I wouldn't be too worried about him because um, they want the guy that went after Disneyland or something like that. Now, Logan, I do want to get back to the, the original you know, head-to-head matchup, and, and here's what I think. I think you're right about if people don't know somebody, they don't say they're for them, and that could help them rise. But I think about for, since 2016, we've had larger and larger numbers of Republicans for a cycle or two not answering polls. In 2018 and 2020, they didn't trust pollsters. They didn't trust the media. But I think in 2022, more rank-and-file Republicans trusted pollsters. They answered polls honestly, and it gave us a little better picture. But I still think there's a group of holdouts, and I think those holdouts are the hardcore MAGA voters and I think anytime we see a Donald Trump number, particularly in the Republican primary, you can add anywhere from five to ten points to that number because there's a ton of holdouts that either aren't being sampled, being undersampled, or just aren't letting themselves be sampled. What do you think about that theory? Um, I think it's an I think it's an interesting theory. It's definitely possible. I would say two reasons why I'd, I think it might not be true, and one reason why I think it might be true, right? The two reasons I would say it might not be true is back in 2016, and I know Trump has more of a hold now and wasn't on his anti-pollster thing back then, at least as much. Um, the polls were pretty accurate in that primary, and in 2022, I don't think, you know, the polls in the primaries are pretty good, and they didn't have a tendency to systematically over underrate Republicans. I mean, you can have examples like J.D. Vance. I, I don't mean Republicans. I mean Trump endorses. But if there's anyone in the country who's going to create that sort of schism, and if there's any place where you would see it, it would be Trump running in the primary. Um, and it's really hard for pollsters to get around that because you, you don't know who's a Trump Republican and who's not. If you ask that question, that literally means who they're voting for in the primary if you're trying to predict the electorate. So I see it as a concern, you know, but I would still say um, I'm, I'm not saying Trump can't win or anything. Obviously, he can, you know. Up until about a week or two weeks ago, I thought he was the favorite. Now I'm thinking it's a toss-up. But um, after I, I – it's not something changed. It's just I started to look at some more data and got convinced. Um, you know, Trump, Trump has gone down from 85% in polling in the 2020 primary, you know, to 45%. The momentum's in the wrong way. His attacks on DeSantis so far look pretty weak, and he doesn't seem to be interested in campaigning. Now, all of that can change. Maybe he need, need – but so far he hasn't been acting like a guy who – like at all, like he did in 2016 to me. Yeah, hmm. it seems like it's the, the front porch campaign, uh, but they're going to Mar-a-Lago in many respects. Well, um, <laughs> Logan, one kind of last question, but it's about your site kind of 
We know you had the NFL model. You rolled that out, had tremendous success. Um, basketball and hockey are about to roll into the playoffs. We're about to kick off the MLS season. Major League Baseball will start soon thereafter. Um, any plans on doing models for other sports? I would love to have an NBA one to get a good read on my Knicks because I can never figure them out, just for the fan. Uh, but it does take a lot of work, and I noticed that I don't get as many views for that, right? I think it was about 1% of my views in 2022 were for my sports model. I had a baseball one, too, and they were about, like, 20% of my work. So I'm hoping to return to it. Baseball would be more likely because I already built it already. Um, but I don't think I'm going to have time to do NBA and NHL just because, you know, on the off-year elections, i got to work a little harder to make that profit. So, um but I'm a diehard baseball fan, and I already have the tool set up, so we might see that. And NFL is a lot easier to keep going because I don't have to update 162 games for all 30 teams. It's only once a week, so probably going to keep that one going. you got to go where the eyeballs are. Yeah, you got to go where the eyeballs are. And I tell you, I'd be willing to come help you with the NBA model, but you probably just trade me off for five future second-round draft picks to be named later, <laughs> and I can't handle it. So... Um, <laughs> So, Logan, let us leave you with this. If we've heard about this model, heard how effective it was, tell our listeners how they can view it directly and then also um, where they can see uh, Rejo on social media. Yeah, so it's racetothewh.com. And the whole point of the site, right? I, I know we talked a lot about the prediction record, and forgive my ego for going with it too, but, you know, it's not really the main goal of the site. Like, the goal is to help people understand what's going on in politics, right? So hopefully we'll be able to take really complicated things from, you know, the Electoral College to the Senate map in 2024 to eventually, you know, the primaries and the race for the delegates to win. Um, make it as accessible as possible so that if you're smart, you follow politics, even if you're not a numbers person. My goal is to translate it into information that anyone can get who, who knows about politics. And so, you know, between maps and graphs and a bunch of other things, it's just meant to be clear and crisp. And if you're someone that likes to volunteer, get involved in politics, my stuff's out there earlier than anyone else. I already have my Senate model out there. And so I do it so early because I want to make sure that activists don't have to wait till June of like five months before the election before they can make sure their time is being well spent, right? Because the primaries are important too. So um, hopefully it will help people if they're looking to volunteer, donate, do it to the places where it'll make the biggest difference. Um, you know, and even if you're not, make it easier to get engaged and follow politics. So it's race to wh.com. We have our Senate model up, um, tracking, polling for the primaries. They'll have a delegate forecast coming out soon. That's just based off the polling. It's not a full one, but She'll also make it interesting to see what's going on and who's likely to win. Um, and tracking all sorts of presidential general election polls, too. A lot more stuff is going to be coming out over the next few weeks. So race to the WH.com. And if you uh, want to follow me on social media, I'm way, 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 way more active on Twitter than I am on the others. Um, so I think it's Logan, at Logan R2WH, but in case I got that wrong, they just switched it up in the last few days. Um, it, you can just search race to the WH. You'll find the company account, and the one I use much more often uh, is in the bio description too, which is my personal one. But the company one, it kind of almost functions. My personal one almost functions as the main company one too. Oh, sure thing. And of course, if we look on ours, we have about tonight's show um, or today's show with um, both yours and your company's tagged. So, and if you share that uh, about that, that'll all work together. Well, Logan, we thank you so much, and we'll have to have you on. 
after some more time has passed um, to hear more about how the models are progressing and, and different things. And, of course, eventually we'll be back to the next football season when us uh, Giants and Falcons fans have hope again. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, both of us are moving in the right direction, so hopefully it's a sign of a good future thing. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Great talking to you guys. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. Anytime. All right. That was Logan Phillips of Race to the WH. Uh, good to have him on. So much information. I tell you, his model is so incredible, and there's so much great math there. But then he pulls out this huge piece of information about um, – Joe Lombardo and being the sheriff of Nevada and how important that was, and that had nothing to do with math. That was just good political analysis, and so that's really what you get from Logan. So it's great to have him on. Um, I guess we've got time, maybe one or two more stories, and one, the next thing we're going to talk about is a follow-up from last week. We had uh, Taylor Vance, a reporter from Northeast Mississippi, there in Tupelo, and he told us all about what was going on in Mississippi politics. Well, just in the past week, um, former NFL quarterback, Hall of Fame quarterback, Super Bowl winning quarterback, Brett Favre, sued everybody, even though everybody knows uh, you know, kind of what went down with that welfare uh, scandal. He's suing the state auditor of Mississippi, which is a Republican. He's suing Pat McAfee, who has the most – successful online sports talk show. He's suing Shannon Sharp, who is one of the top, you know, cable TV talkers, suing everybody he can find to try to somehow rebuild his reputation. But they're not the ones that did these things and initially accused him of any of this. Certainly in in McAfee and and Sharp's case, they weren't. Um, Tim, how big a sign of desperation is this? Well, I, I I wonder if he overreacted a little bit. Uh, of course, Farb has not been officially charged with any crime. He claims he did not know where this money that he in southern Mississippi got even came from, you know. And uh, his, his more immediate problem is that the state welfare agency is – suing him to recover money. Uh, I think there's like $228,000 interest on um, the money that Farb has already paid back. And then there's this question of $5 million that went to southern Mississippi for what was it, a volleyball stadium or something? If he goes forward with these suits, uh, there's going to be extensive investigations into every little corner and aspect of this. So if he's going to do this, guys, I think he'd better be innocent or he might be about to reap the whirlwind, don't you think? Yeah, um, I do think he has a a chance to really tarnish his reputation even further. He's done such a good job of that on his own. We'll probably get our letter. I'll get my letter for that soon. Um, But um, then you think about, we were talking to Taylor about how, you know, is this going to hurt Republican politicians? Probably for sure won't hurt the auditor. It seems like it would help him. Um, But it 
how how could this defect, uh, affect the governor, uh, Tate Reeves, who's aligned with him and involved in all this? Um, Catherine, I know you probably don't know a lot about Brett Favre, but um, just the fact that he's suing and he's keeping this story in the news for both him and the governor, who's apparently a political ally of his, um, how good or bad a move is this? Bad move. Yeah. You should just let the courts take care of it. Yeah. You know, just shut up Absolutely. about it. Absolutely. It just Absolutely. more attention. And uh, especially on Super Bowl Day and around the Super Bowl, mm-hmm. everybody's already paying a lot of attention to football. And then to, you know, add this into the mix, I just think it's, you know, either he's getting bad advice or he's not listening to advice from professional PR people because it's it's a, a, it's bad. David. Yeah. Um, I, I hey, David. Go ahead, David. Jim. Question for you. You mentioned the word desperation. Do you think that's what this is with thought? Yeah, I mean, I mean, maybe he is trying to cover up more, or he, his, he maybe not spend his money well, and he needs ad money because he is one of those athletes that you know he had copper fit and probably some kind of foot ointment. I I don't know what all kind of stuff he endorses, but I know he makes money off of endorsements. Some athletes are lucky enough that they can continue that on after their active careers. Maybe he depends mm-hmm. on that money a lot, and that would hurt those if those advertisers start dropping him, but that's not the way to get him back because um, Pat McAfee and Shannon Sharp are both continuing to be in the public eye through their work on TV, and he's not, and and people are probably going to continue to uh, know about them and learn more about them. And uh, it's real interesting. I don't know if um, Shannon Sharp said something on his show on, I guess, Friday about it because – He's on a television network, and, and theoretically, Fox Sports could get sued. And, of course, they get enough lawsuits for all their terrible work on the news side, which the sports side and the news side are very drastically different. Um, but they're mm-hmm. all by the same bank account. But then on Pat McAfee's side, he's an independently owned entity that is on YouTube. He's just out there. This is actually a, a side hustle that's now worth billions. Um and he kind of talks about it. He went on and talked about it. He's not really going to be afraid. He doesn't have to answer to a corporate boss, and he can continue with his literally millions of views on YouTube for most every show he does or every segment. Um, he can continue to talk about this as long as he chooses to. And so this was a weird fight to pick because, you know, I was mentioning with Taylor on HBO, Mamani Jones, I mean, he tore into – really three people, far Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase, and Marcus Dupree, about this scandal. He didn't sue him, so it's very hit and miss. But um, yeah, I think this will continue but, to play in the Mississippi governor's race. It just seems like Tate Reeves, because of how Mississippi is, it's just set up for a Republican not to lose. But things like this are the kind of events that could possibly put it in play if anything could. Yeah. I was wondering, though. Oh, Tim? Well, my my 
follow-up question was about the state auditor. All he's doing is conducting an investigation. He's not rendering opinions. Anything he said is factual. How can he sue him for defamation? But don't you think that's more of a back-off move? Like if I sue him for defamation, then they'll back off of, I don't know, auditing, which is kind of what the state auditor does. <laughs> don't, don't bet um, on it. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if I say you've been mean no. to me, you'll stop checking the math. You'll stop balancing the checkbook. I mean, you know, that, that's, but, but that could be what it is. I mean, Catherine, obviously there are different things. Two are media personnel has been sued that talk about sports. One is a, um, one is a um, elected official. I mean, do you see that part of it is different? Um. I don't know. I, it's all just nasty and uh, ugly. And the less anyone talks about it, the better it is for them. So. <laughs> yeah. And I'll say this. I don't think CNN and Fox News have picked up on this a lot. I don't watch a lot of Fox News, but I haven't heard that they have. I don't really – I really don't watch a lot of cable news in general, but I have seen clips pop up on MSNBC, and I, I wonder how somehow they've not been sued, although maybe it's because they cover it in a certain kind of way, or maybe he just disregards you know, their audience or something. Well, he's not suing them, but I found that interesting because they have done a lot of coverage on this um, story. But, but we'll, we'll see how this unfolds particularly as we keep discussing uh, the Mississippi governor's race, as polling comes in, you know, how much does this play into this thing? Well, um, Tim and Catherine got two minutes left. Logan went ahead and gave us his prediction. We didn't even have to ask him. He was just ready to tell us. Um, Catherine, do you have a prediction on the game? Uh, no. I don't even know who's playing. <laughs> okay, I don't fine. know. I don't know anything. I don't. I just do not pay any attention to sports ball. I just, it's just not in my uh, not in my list of things. Catherine, so, I should have let you steal my prediction, and it was it would have been one hundred percent correct. Uh, Kelsey will win the Super Bowl, and if you'd have said that, there was it was a hundred percent guarantee you would have been right that a Kelsey would win the Super Bowl. I don't know if you know, but oh, two brothers a, are playing I do know, though, each I do other. know this story. This is the. Two brothers who are both playing, right? On yes. opposite teams, yeah. Right. I do know that. Yeah. I don't know why but, I know that, but yeah, the, the, those parents hit the parenting lottery today, or actually for the last two weeks, I guess. Um, Tim, do you want to make a prediction? Well, I watched my first NFL championship game in 1963, and I've always had a strong opinion on who I figured would win, so why not today, too? Uh, I hope Harrison Bucker has a, has a great game, and, and you know why I hope that. He's, he's a tech man, and I'll be pulling for him, but i got to believe that by the barest of margins, the Eagles – will pull this thing out because of their defense. There we go. You? Yeah, I'll tell you, I think the best three players on the field might all play for the Chiefs. 
Mahomes, Chris Jones, and Travis Kelsey. Um, Mm -hmm. Andy Reid's the better coach, but it looks like the Philadelphia Eagles have more volume, um, and so they have more good players. Like if you know player four, five, six, seven may all be with them and down the line. Um, so it's it's really tricky in that dynamic. I, I kind of agree with Logan. It's like a fifty-one forty-nine type of game. I'm going to go slightly the Chiefs just because they've been there, and I do think since Andy Reid got fired by Philadelphia, um, that which is just crazy to think about. I think he's going to just outplan the the much younger coach Nick Sirianni. So I'm going to go fifty-one forty-nine. Kansas City Chiefs, but um, we'll go ahead and get off of here so everybody can get ready for the Super Bowl. Do want to set up next week's show? We're going to have former state senator from Missouri, Jeff Smith, come on. Jeff Smith is um, really one of the most knowledgeable and funny people understanding about Missouri politics, uh, which incidentally has Kansas City included. But I think Jeff's from the eastern half of the state with St. Louis, so we're going to talk to him about. Where St. Louis, I mean, where uh, Missouri was, you know, like 20 years ago, and where it is today politically, and how that happened. So we're excited about that and being back at our regular time at seven. So until next week, then because Yvonne. Bye bye all. Good night, guys. Good day, buddy. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united. America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world. America has created.